from the Alaska Airlines Studio. Presented by 2020lifestyles.com. This is The Blitz. The first look at the top stories in Seattle sports. They don't make them like good. We're not like everybody else. The rundown on everything Seattle sports on your way to work. Swing and a fly ball. Deep right center field. He did it again. And the stories everyone is talking about. This is the Blitz at Six. Good morning, friends. Welcome to the Blitz at Six. Lydia Cruz alongside with you Thursday, July 30th. August just around the corner. Baseball in full swing and a fun to watch one last night for the Mariners battling against the Angels. A couple of lead changes in that one. But the Mariners uh, staying tough. Ended up winning at pulling that victory recovering from two late deficits for a 10-7 win over the Los Angeles Angels on Wednesday night. We'll discuss the positives from that. Kyle Seeger, he just said no to having a slow start this year. Drove in three runs. Also Dylan Moore with a three-run home run yesterday. And Justin Dunn on the mound. Some positives from his outing as well. Also, speaking of baseball, we finally got the news on the suspensions. Uh, what happened in the Joe Kelly benches clearing incident with the Houston Astros and the Dodgers? Joe Kelly suspended eight games, which would be the equivalent of 22, I believe, in a full season, uh, angering a lot of people yesterday. Also, Dave Roberts suspended one game, Dusty Baker fined, but a lot of people understandably upset over that one, seeing as no Astros players received any punishment for the sign stealing scandal, but Joe Kelly did appeal. So we'll discuss the details of that. And then plus, we'll just start it off with our headlines right now. Russell Wilson getting his highest ranking ever at number two in the NFL top 100 yesterday. So congrats to Russ. Uh, the top 10 were revealed yesterday, and they were Derrick Henry running back for the Tennessee Titans coming in at number 10. Stephon Gilmore, uh, a very popular name on this list over the years, New England Patriots cornerback. DeAndre Hopkins coming in at number eight. Pains me to say this now, Arizona Cardinals wide receiver. George Kittle, also San Francisco 49ers tight end. Speaking of the NFC West and being formidable. Christian McCaffrey coming in at number six. Should I even call him a running back? Running back slash wide receiver for the Carolina Panthers does just everything. Michael Thomas at number five, New Orleans Saint wide receiver. Uh, Patrick Mahomes coming in at number four for the Kansas City Chiefs. Aaron Donald at number three. And then Russell Wilson at number two. And Lamar Jackson taking the top spot. I believe the youngest person ever to get that number one spot. Baltimore Ravens quarterback. But uh, congratulations, big ups to Russ for coming in at number two, the highest uh, he has ever been ranked on this list. And man, just coming for that number one spot. Let's go. The Mariners rallying from two late deficits for a 10-7 victory over the Angels on Wednesday night. Here's the stretch and the 1-1 on the way to Otani. And here she comes, swing and a pop-up. This is going to do it. Left center field coming in. Kyle Lewis, he is there and makes the catch, and the ball game is over. The Mariners won it 10-7 over the Angels tonight here in Anaheim. And Scott Service saying uh, it was a fun game. Yeah, fun game. Obviously, uh, we did a, a lot of things well in the batter's box tonight. Kind of pressure on them. We really did dominate the strike zone in the batter's box. Uh, starts with a start. I thought Justin Dunn was outstanding the first three innings best we've seen him in a long time as far as like his presence on the mound and attacking. Uh, I ran into a little trouble during the fourth. And- 
Also mentioning the bullpen there and helping them out, at least carrying them for part of the way. Pitching our bullpen hung in there. Um, certainly seven, eight, nine. And those guys were, were really good and sharp. But a nice win. I've come back a couple different times in that ball game against a team. Fun to watch the athleticism of our young player play out. To third, I think two or three times in the one big inning we had. Uh, the defensive plays again have fun to watch. But we're learning. We're learning more about our guys every day and get a win tonight. Justin Dunn on the mound for the M's in his first start of the season. Three innings for him, gave up three runs, two of them earned three walks and two strikeouts. Uh, he got Justin Upton looking. Uh, this was pretty good for his first strikeout of the season. Fastball on the way. Strike three called. Upton is caught looking. Justin Dunn with his first strikeout tonight. Zips the old heater right at the knees. And one away for the Angels here in the bottom half of the second. Strikeout number one of the year for Justin Dunn, and that was a beauty. Dunn also faced the minimum in the second and third innings after facing four batters in the first. The 0-2, swinging a ground ball, skimming sharply to short. Crawford has it, throws on to first base. White the receiving end for out number three. Justin Dunn faces the minimum for the second straight inning. In the bottom of the fourth is where things got a little bit dicey. Mike Trout was safe at first on a throwing error by J.P. Crawford. Anthony Rendon then walked, and then Shohei Otani homered to right center field. A stretch, and the next off on the way, swinging a fly ball into right field. Lopes going back and looking up, and goodbye baseball. Shohei Otani with a three-run home run here in the bottom of the fourth inning, giving the Angels a 3-1 to lead, the first hit of the night for the Angels. A home run off of Justin Dunn. And for Otani, his first home run of the season. Another walk to Justin Upton, and that's when uh, Scott Service made a call to the bullpen. Nick Gavick just coming in for Seattle. He ended up leaving the game uh, later in that game. Uh, as Shannon Dreher aptly tweeted out, just someone please remind him he's a pitcher. I was going for a fly ball, trying to catch it, or foul ball, excuse me, and ended up rolling over and bruising his right hip, so had to come out of that game later. But Justin Dunn really positive for the first three innings of that game, and he's talked after the game about how he felt pretty good. Oh, really good. Um, big goal today was knowing they're a very patient team, so staying on the attack, fill the zone up, uh, make them put the ball in play, make them swing. Today was a good day to punch out the play trying to get quick outs and be as effective as possible. Um, had a couple long MVPs there in the beginning, but went out for the floor, still felt good. I think I put a little too much emphasis on shutdown inning. Got a little timid and not really didn't really stay on the attack like I did the entire game before. But those are big league hitters. That's a really good lineup. And uh, show did a good job that pitch. Brand-new Mariner Brian Shaw, he allowed five base runners and gave up three runs in the sixth, but still got his first win since joining the Mariners last week. Daniel Tavilla pitched the ninth for his first save. On offense, a lot of great things. Kyle Lewis, a three-for-five night, and it began with a single in the fourth. And the lefty's 0-1 pitch, swung on fly ball into shallow right center field. That's going to drop in for a base hit. Down to second base goes White, makes the turn, heads for three. The throw will go into second base, Kyle Lewis. Starts off the year with a six-game hitting streak. Single in the right center, sending Evan White around to third. It's the year of the Kyles, too, because Seager with an RBI single to follow it up. Here's the pitch on the way to Seager. Swung on line, drive to right field. That's in there for a base hit. That'll score White from third. 
Lewis rounding second now puts on the brakes. The throw in by Goodwin is going to be cut off by the shortstop Fletcher. Kyle Seeger with a base hit and a run batted in. The Mariners have the first run of the game, a one to nothing lead on Seeger's fourth RBI of the season. A lot of teams have been logging big innings against the M so far this season. Um, but yesterday it was their turn to do the same thing. The Mariners had a five-run sixth inning. Seager also having an RBI single in the top of that six. Pause the one-two. Swinging its line up the middle into right center field for a base hit. Crawford coming down the line to score. Kyle Lewis is into second base and makes the turn on to third. He stands up there. Kyle Seager has driven in both Mariners' runs. It's now four to Angels. Tim Lopes, too, having himself a start to the season, adding an RBI double. The pause, the pitch, swing, and this is cracked up the middle into center field for a base hit. Trout having to go all the way to the base of the track to pick it up. Kyle Lewis scores from third. Seeger first to third. Tim Lopes, the L.A. kid, comes back home and has driven in a run for the second straight night. Lopes stands up at second. He has brought the Mariners within one. And then still in that frame, Dylan Moore with a three-run shot. It's good to hear home run calls again. The next pitch. Swing and he blasts this out to the gap. Right center field. Trout looking up, looking, saluting. Gone home run. Dylan Moore the opposite way. A homecoming for Dylan also. How about that mammoth blast? Three-run smash. His first of 2020 comes at Angel Stadium. He puts the Mariners in front 6-4 to four in the sixth inning. Yeah, not bad. Also, on the TV feed of that, you could hear someone in the Mariners' dugout clearly yell uh, home run right after Dylan Moore's crack of the bat, uh, just yelling homer. They called it immediately. The Mariners making their decisive rally in the seventh inning. Uh, they The Angels' bullpen yielded eight runs yesterday. Uh, pretty bad for them. Kyle Lewis tied it with a bases-loaded ground out off Ty Buttry, and then Kyle Seeger with a sack fly to put Seattle ahead 8-7. to seven. He ended the night 3-4 for four with 3 RBI. And Scott Service mentioned no slow start for Seegs this year. Yeah, I think uh, Mariners fans for a long time are used to seeing uh, Kyle Seeger always get off to the slow start. But, you know, starting the season in July, I think it's more the months with him. And he's been been really good. Uh, you know, just doing what he does in the batter's box. You know, not trying to hit homers or anything. Just having quality of bats. Three more hits tonight. Three more RBIs. Uh, it's it's really nice to see getting off to this kind of start. Um, you know, he's such a voice in our clubhouse, and you know, you certainly you speak up more. You feel like you could take on even more of a leadership role when you're playing well. He's playing really well. Also, J.P. Crawford yesterday added a two-run single in the eighth. It was an intense, gritty 10-pitch at bat for him. He went two for three with two runs and two RBI while batting in the leadoff spot for the first time and did so uh, admirably yesterday. And Scott Service making sure to shout him out after the game as well. Quick update on catcher Austin Nola. He could be ready to return Friday for Seattle's home opener, according to Scott Service. He was a late scratch on Tuesday with a sore right knee, but up next... It will be Marco Gonzalez on the mound uh, against Anaheim. Dylan Bundy going to going to get the ball for the Angels. Up next on the Blitz, uh, Russell Wilson, congrats to him getting number two from the NFL's top 100 list. I just want to play some of the sound from what other players had to say about going up against Russ. It's next on the Blitz right here on 710 ESPN Seattle. You're listening to The Blitz from the Alaska Airlines Studio. 
Welcome back to the Blitz at 6. Lydia Cruz alongside with you Thursday, July 30th. The NFL's top 100, the top 10 players revealed yesterday. And Russell Wilson coming in at number two. Lamar Jackson ahead of him at number one. But I want to play you some of the sound of players' uh, comments. I I love always hearing from them and their opinion. First off, the players uh, were a little stumped on who might end up as number one if you gave them the choice between Russ and Lamar. Ah, that is hard. That is very hard. Number one right now? Uh, hmm. Uh, a lot of guys are saying Lamar Jackson. Ah, I'm going to change it up on you. Number one is Lamar Jackson. Uh, I'll take it back. Lamar. Russell Wilson. Either Russell or Lamar. I would say the top player is Russell Wilson. Between those two, I think. Lamar Jackson. Russell Wilson. Lamar Jackson. Russell Wilson. Lamar Jackson. Both of them have valid arguments. Lamar is having them viral plays, but Russell is winning them big games. And that's surprising a lot of them with really positive things to say about Russ. Top player in the league, Russell Wilson. Uh, and I don't think it's close. He has everything. He got the strong arm, but he also got the touch. Reminds me a lot of uh, Montana back in the day. If Top 100 had been a thing in the 80s, Joe Montana would have been near the top of the list. But not even Montana or Tom Brady, or any of these other guys for that matter, pulled off what Russell Wilson did. In the history of the NFL, there has never been a quarterback who started his first eight seasons with winning seasons until today. Russell Wilson. Eight seasons with winning records, without missing a start, and without missing a top 100. Give a rouse for Russ. Players also with a specific thoughts on Russ and what it's like to go up against him. Hey, Russ. How you doing, bud? Good. Thanks for coming in. Yeah, thank you. Thanks for having me. I think he's great for our game. I love to play against him. He just creates plays out of nothing. He just continues to produce. I had him in my grasp no less than four times. If this was Madden, he would have 100 pocket awareness. Well, there's a lot of different challenges when you're playing against or, or rushing against Russell Wilson. First, you have to beat the tackle, the guy that's blocking you, or whatever scheme they have, the tight end, the chips. You have to do that first. And then you have to get him down. He's like a chicken in a, in, in a chicken house, man. He's just running. You know how people try to go catch chicken, man? <laughs> I came free in situations. And he just step up in the pocket and he take off. And I'm like, what the? Like, where did he go? And that thing, I know he's 15 yards downfield. He's a guy who can get very creative after the first option's not there. It's hard to tell what's a design and what's not by design. I believe that was Zadarius Smith, one half of the Smith brothers there with the uh, chicken comparison for Russ, just trying to catch him. Uh, more thoughts on Russ yesterday. I don't know what to say about him, man. He's, he's a complete player. From a mental and a physical aspect, it's just hard not to like Russell. Russell, what do you see? I mean, I see a Houdini. He can throw in the pocket, outside the pocket. He doesn't turn the ball over. He's an all-around great player. Oh, yeah, he's, he's a beast. Russell, Russell Wilson's a baller, man. He's probably up there top deep balls in the game, deep ball throwers. It's like every time he throws a deep ball, it hits a receiver right in the chest every time. 
Congrats again to Russell Wilson, number two, his highest ranking ever in the NFL Top 100. Once again, uh, top five, Michael Thomas, Patrick Mahomes, Aaron Donald, Russ Wilson coming in at number two, and then Lamar Jackson, number one, just ahead of him. The youngest player, I believe, to get that number one spot ever. Coming up on the Blitz, well, speaking of the fate of football this season, we'll hear from the league's chief medical officer, Dr. Alan Sills, on where they're at, what they are going to do, how they're watching MLB and what happened this past week with the outbreak on the Marlins team and how they'll handle testing in a potential outbreak of their own. It's next on the Blitz right here on 710 ESPN Seattle. From the Alaska Airlines studio, this is The Blitz. Welcome back to The Blitz at 6. Lydia Curry is hanging out with you this morning, Thursday, July 30th. City of Seattle is still reacting to the Jamal Adams trade for the All-Pro safety days later. That news coming down last Saturday. And yesterday, we got to hear from our own Brock Hewitt. He was on with Tom, Jake, and Stacy yesterday, jumping on with them, and wondered about how the Seahawks will utilize Jamal Adams. Will they get innovative? All right, so tell us about the trade, what you were thinking on that it was made, and if you've thought any differently a couple days later. Yeah, on the day it was made, I reacted right away, um, which is always kind of a dangerous thing, but that's okay. That was my initial emotion, and I thought it was way too much. I thought two first-rounders and a third-rounder, and ultimately having to satisfy Jamal financially, which is, why he's not a Jet. I know you guys had Bob with shoes and on, and I talked to Bob right after the trade went down as well. And Bob said, listen, if they would have paid him $17 million a year, he'd be out on the streets of New York yelling J-E-T-S, Jets, Jets, Jets. I mean, he, he wants you know his payday. He wants his money. He wasn't going to get it there, and, and ultimately he, he forced his way out of there. So I thought it was an awful lot for an organization that for a decade – that, that we have followed them very, very closely. And for a decade, they've believed in developmental, uh, a, de- a developmental approach, um, using and, and manipulating the draft board on draft day with those first round picks time and time and time again. And, you know, it was quite a, quite a break from what they've done and been, been in the past. So initially, Tom, like you, I thought it was way too much. Did you listen to John Snyder? As you listen to Pete Carroll, as you listen to the people in the organization, they just felt like this was the kind of player to make this move, to go after it. Um, they need him. They need more defensive players like Jamal Adams, and he will certainly help them on the field. So I didn't love the deal, uh, but I certainly admire the player, and he's going to make a difference for that defense. Now, Brock, is this something that you feel like you can get over, or is the two first-round picks is just something that's always going to pull at your heartstrings, is always going to be something that's a tough pill to swallow for you, despite the potential success that Jamal Adams and the upgrade and the boost that Jamal Adams could potentially bring? Yeah, well, Jake, they've got to have success. So will I get over it? Sure. But they've got to have success. I mean, this is, I think, John and, and Cruz, you know, this is their, their livelihood on the line for, for going for it. And I applaud them for doing that and you know they're in their window to win right now you have said that very clearly you've been a maybe one of the loudest proponents to go for it you talked about this move a couple weeks ago that the Seahawks were in on trade talks but yeah I I don't think there's any way to sugarcoat it I think John Snyder and and that that regime uh, in the personnel department is this has got to work I mean Jamal has got to be a difference maker he's got to be a baller he's got to 
he's got to be worthy of what they gave up and, and help them not be a 7-8-9 win team, which they've never been, but instead be that 11-12 win team and, and keep this thing moving forward. So I'll get over it, um, but it's an awful lot of risk. There's got to be the reward and the payoff on the backside, and they've got to win, uh, making a move and pulling the trigger in the nature that they did with this one. Now, Brock, how do they come out on top? How do they make this work outside of, obviously, the ultimate goal uh, of winning a Super Bowl? But how do they maximize Jamal Adams' talent out on the field to make this worthwhile? Jake, and that's probably where I'm maybe the most nervous. You get over, it's like you know buying a car or a home or whatever, and it tightens up the sticker shock for something you really want is more than maybe you anticipated. But, you know, you buy it because you're going to love it. You're going to enjoy it. We're going to love and enjoy the player in Jamal Adams. My reservation a little bit is they better utilize him. You know, the number of times you and I texted on game day last year of a, of a defense that played vanilla, a defense that allowed a quarterback, any quarterback, even the, even the you know, 96-year-old Matt Schaub throw for 460 yards against them. Uh, you know, they played a, a lot of base. They played very simplistic defenses, very easy to read and, and, and take apart and, and protect yourself. So I, I really hope that Coach Carroll and Ken Norton and the rest of that defensive staff says, no, we've got to innovate. We've got to be more creative. We've got to go to more nickel. We've got to be willing to play Jamal in the box next to Bobby in those nickel situations and get away from what they've done for a decade. So that's where some of my reservation is, Jake, that I I hope they utilize this guy in every single capacity and have just the the, the creativity and the will to be creative defensively in ways they really haven't been for some time. Why would Carroll and Norton hesitate to do that? Because they've never done it, really, Stacey. I mean, they've never they've never majored in that. They've they've majored in what they believe in for decades and decades, and it built a dynasty at USC. It won them a Super Bowl in nearly two. You know, the whole adage of you've got to deal with us. We're going to play our cover three and our man and single high, and you're going to have to deal with what we do. And there was always imagination and creativity week to week within their scheme. And I hate it hearing people say, oh, gosh, all they do is play in cover one and cover three. No, you know, they, they manipulate that defense week to week, but they've not had to be terribly creative for the first six, seven years of the personnel they had. And when they went last year and said, no, 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 back to basics, back to base defense, back to very basic soft zone coverage, they got gashed. So why, why am I hesitant or why would they be hesitant, Stacey? Because there's not been a particular track record where they've been one of the more creative defenses in the league. And I think you're going to have to be with Marquise Blair and what you want to do with him, with Jamal, what you want to do with him. I think some, some limitations still in your pass rush that you've got to compensate for with those speedy and talented and fast young players. And, and I sure hope they're a bunch more creative in 2020 than they were a season ago. I was Brock Heward on with Tom, Jake, and Stacy. You can uh, listen to that full interview online at 710sports.com. Just click on the podcast tab. The Rock and Salt podcast also available for you there as well. Uh, now, training camps are underway, and the NFL season moving ahead as planned, as of now, but yesterday, Dr. Alan Sills, NFL Chief Medical Officer, was on with Golick and Wingo and had a few comments on where the NFL is at in terms of health and safety protocols surrounding COVID-19. Uh, he talked about how the NFL is watching MLB closely right now. Of course, the Marlins outbreak, I think now up to 18 players and staff members tested positive, uh, and they are watching 
the MLB closely. We're watching this very carefully, as are all other sports. And, and I think that's been one of the really positive things that's come out of this situation as we look for positives is that we've had tremendous collaboration with all other sports, not only around America, but around the world. I mean, I've been on calls each week with Australian football and the Bundesliga and English Premier League and these other leagues. So we are definitely listening to and learning from each league and we're sharing our learnings with each other because we're all facing the same set of challenges and we all want to try to get this right. Dr. Sills on the NFL expecting positive tests. I think we recognize that uh, this is something we've talked about for a long time, that we expect in the NFL and in every league we're going to have positive cases. They're going to pop up no matter how careful we try to be because this disease remains endemic in our society. So I think what we have to look to is how can we most quickly identify any new positive case get that individual isolated away from the team environment, make sure they get the appropriate care and and try to avoid a more widespread outbreak. So I think that's something we'll continue to track and and look to. I think also there's a great educational opportunity here. I think, again, it just shows how quickly something can spread around the team um, and how players, coaches, staff, everybody just has to be vigilant at all times. This is something where we're facing a tough opponent in this virus, and we just can sort of never let our guard down on or off the field. Golik and Wingo, though, asking him, Dr. Allen Sills, NFL Chief Medical Officer, what do you do in a sport where you can't socially distance? Football and, and physical distance really don't go together. So I think we have to address that in a couple of ways. One is, obviously, we want to try to show up to the field, practice field or game field, in an uninfected state. And that's the point of our testing and screening programs is to do frequent surveillance and, again, quickly identify anyone who might be a new infection uh, and, and get them removed from those environments. And we've also done a tremendous amount of education Um, saying that people have to quickly report symptoms. You know, I mean, how many times have any one of us woken up with eh, maybe a little sore throat or a little nasal congestion and thought, gosh, it must be my allergies again that are bothering me or something like that? You know, we can't make that assumption in the the COVID era. We have to say, you know, any symptoms get reported and we're going to pull those individuals out until we can get them appropriately tested. But I think it's also critically important what we do off of the field. Um, The choices that we make, you know, making sure that masks are being worn everywhere, making sure with good hand hygiene, uh, uh, respecting physical distance, staying away from crowded restaurants, bars, et cetera, all of those choices are going to have a huge impact on the vulnerability of players, coaches, and staff becoming infected and and keeping them hopefully in a a position where they're not showing up on the field uh, with a new infection. And additionally to that, I'll just say I think you guys are familiar with the the chips that we're using that everyone's wearing that tracks proximity so that, again, we can go back and figure out who exactly did have a close exposure to a a newly infected person and, and quickly test and isolate those individuals as well, again, whether that's on or off the field. That was Dr. Alan Sills, NFL Chief Medical Officer, as training camps get underway, but still a lot of questions as to the logistics, how things will work, especially when actual uh, contact starts to happen. Coming up next on The Blitz, it's time for the hot list. The ACC voted yesterday to proceed with an 11-game football season, and that will include Notre Dame in the full league schedule. I'll explain the details of that, plus implications for other conferences, other Power 5 schools. It's next in the Hot List right here on 710 ESPN Seattle. You're listening to The Blitz from the Alaska Airlines studio. It's time for The Hot List. Holy mackerel. The headlines for the day in sports every morning at 645. Heck yes. What are we missing here? A full breakdown of the top stories of today on your morning drive. Let's go. 
NBA basketball is back. Today, we get two matchups, Jazz versus Pelicans, 3.30 p.m. on TNT, Lakers versus Clippers, 6 p.m. on TNT. Yesterday, Adam Silver speaking uh, a little bit on the health and safety protocols for the NBA. Do they have a plan in place if the NBA has a similar outbreak to what happened in Major League Baseball? We we do, although it's not an exact science because nobody's ever done this before. Um, And I think we have plans in place where we might pause, similar to what baseball is doing now, probably if we had any any significant spread at all, we'd immediately stop. And one thing we do is try to track those cases to determine where they're coming from and whether there had been spread on the campus. I would say, ultimately, we, we would cease completely if we saw that this was spreading around the campus and, and something more than an isolated case was happening. Brian Windhorst, ESPN NBA insider on the bubble environment and how well it has worked. Yeah, I mean, it's been terrific. I mean, on paper, this is what it was supposed to be. On paper, this is why the NBA didn't, you know, react negatively when they had a bunch of positive tests. When they first got together, they said, okay, we've got to get the people who are sick weeded out and get them healthy. And, you know, just the overall scale of this. I mean, just when you watch the game itself and you look at how the courts have had to be set up and managed so that, Every team not only has what they need, but they also have all of the adver- local advertisements for the local TV broadcasts, and they, they have all the graphics packages. I mean, just the technical lift on this, not to mention getting food for a 1,000 people, not to mention keeping everybody safe, is just tremendous execution. And um, the NBA needs to be complimented to the highest order that we've even got to this point, and the players themselves for having the faith that the league could do this. Winhorst also mentioned uh, something I found interesting on the possibility of the NBA bubbling next season. So from what I understand, they, the league office is working on, you know, a multiple different scenarios. What happens if we start the season like any normal season in December and everybody plays all 82 games on their home arenas? What happens if we have to create another bubble or multiple bubbles? Um, you know, how long do you keep teams in it? Do you rotate teams in? Or do you do you feel good about the chances of a vaccine or feel good about the chances of selling tickets if you push it back? And do you push it back into the winter or even into the spring? I think all of those are on the table. And the difficulty with uh, anything right now is it's impossible to make, you know, accurate future predictions. And so I think... Definitely one of the things that is possible is that next season becomes one giant bubble, but it doesn't mean that it's going to happen. We know for now two matchups today, as I mentioned, Jazz versus Pelicans, 3.30 p.m. on TNT, Lakers versus Clippers, 6 p.m. It was cool to watch exhibition hockey games yesterday and have baseball on it as well, so feeling a little bit spoiled at this point. Los Angeles Dodgers reliever Joe Kelly was handed an eight-game suspension by Major League Baseball yesterday for his role in the benches-clearing incident that happened in Houston on Tuesday night between the Dodgers and the Astros. Dodgers manager Dave Roberts was also uh, given a one-game suspension. Houston Astros manager Dusty Baker was fined an undisclosed amount. Kelly threw a fastball behind Alex Bregman's head, later uh, also exchanging some pleasantries with Carlos Correa on the way back to the dugout. 
after striking him out. And Kelly said yesterday he'll appeal his suspension, making him available for the series finale. Roberts ended up serving his suspension, one-game suspension last night. Under the 60-game format, though, an eight-game suspension accounts for more than 13% of the schedule, so about a 22-game suspension, I think, would be the equivalent for Kelly Buster only on Dodgers being shocked about the Kelly suspension. Within the Dodgers organization, there's absolute outrage and shock over this decision because an eight-game suspension in a 60-game season is the equivalent of a 21-game suspension. Within the Dodgers organization, there's a feeling of, look, he didn't hit Bregman. He actually, in their eyes, didn't even come close to hitting him, and they felt like Dusty Baker was screaming at uh, Kelly in that inning from the Houston dugout They were absolutely surprised by the length of the suspension, especially because Kelly is a reliever. Now, I think from Major League Baseball's perspective, Rob Manfred said during the wintertime in so many words that he was not going to allow open season to be on the Houston Astros. Back in 2017, when all the sign ceiling stuff happened, I think we can look back and criticize Rob Manfred for not uh, drawing a line in the sand and trying to alter the behavior with one big penalty at that time against the Red Sox or the Yankees. Well, in this case, it seems that's what he's trying to do. MLB referenced a previous suspension for, quote, intentional throwing and uh, handing down that punishment for Kelly. He was docked six games for plunking and then fighting with Tyler Austin of the Yankees back in April 2018 as a part of the Boston Red Sox at the time. Kelly denied intent, though, after the Dodgers incident, saying, quote, my accuracy isn't the best. Um... Baker also claimed that Kelly yelled, nice swing, word that I can't say on the radio, uh, at Correa as he made his pouty face and exchanged uh, some jabbering with Correa as he walked off the mound. Baker said he was fined because his players came onto the field, breaking COVID-19 health and safety protocols, also his reaction to the suspension. You know, I didn't think nothing about it, actually. You know, I mean, this is, uh, you know, the game is first and foremost. I mean, they're going to do what they're going to do. You know, regardless of, you know, what my opinions are. So, you know, I, I think that, you know, the uh, punishments were fair. The ACC Board of Directors voted yesterday to proceed with an 11-game football season that begins the weekend of September 12th and includes FBS Independent Notre Dame playing a full league schedule, but only if public health guidance allows. That's a big if there. All ACC schools in Notre Dame will play 10 conference games plus one non-conference game of their choosing. And Notre Dame will be eligible for the ACC championship game. There will be no divisions for this season only. Now, the non-conference game that they choose to play has to take place in the home state of the ACC institution. And all non-conference opponents have to have met the medical protocol requirements as agreed upon by the ACC. The 11 games will be played over the at least 13 weeks, so two built-in bye weeks, and the ACC championship all culminating in that it will be played in Charlotte, North Carolina on either December 12th or December 19th. It'll feature the top two teams with the highest conference winning percentages. Heather Dinich, ESPN college football reporter yesterday on the ACC schedule with Notre Dame included. This plan is unique because of the ACC's existing contractual agreement with Notre Dame. The Irish were already set to play six games against ACC opponents, and it made sense for them to expand that and include them in it. Because remember, Notre Dame lost USC, Stanford, and Wisconsin because of decisions in the Big Ten and Pac-12 to go conference only. So that all played into how this happened. 
All 15 teams will be part of the bowl process, and Notre Dame would be eligible for the ACC slot in the Orange Bowl if it is not selected as a college football playoff semifinalist. Heather Dinich on how this decision might affect other conferences. Well, let's start with the SEC. And right before we, we got on the show here, I got a statement from Greg Sankey, the SEC commissioner. He said he's not about to speculate on anything that might be floating out there. He said, we continue our discussions focused on the return of fall sports, including football. We will announce any decisions at the appropriate time. That's a statement from SEC Commissioner Greg Sankey. I can tell you that the SEC presidents have a regularly scheduled, previously scheduled, I should say, video conference tomorrow. So everybody's watching that. Big 12 Conference Commissioner Bob Bowlesby told me that the Big 12 presidents are going to be meeting on Monday and they will be presented four or five different scheduling models. He said we are going to arm them with all the information they need to make a decision if that's what they want to do. All television revenue for the 2020 season, including Notre Dame's home games broadcast by NBC, will be shared equally by all 15 institutions. So that's a huge part of the draw right here is that Notre Dame will be sharing their revenue. Uh, Meanwhile, Bob Bowlesby, Big 12 commissioner, said they're still in the dark. There's still uh, a lot of questions in terms of what they're going to do and admits it's a complicated issue trying to bring college football back right now. He also talked about how spring football is an option. I definitely hear them. I don't. I think uh, the spring is a viable option. Uh, I don't think it's first choice. Uh, As I said earlier, I think you, you uh, you go to that by default. And there may be an opportunity for that. Uh, It could turn out that we can't start the football season. It could turn out that we get disrupted broadly enough that we have to shutter the season. Uh, It could be that some schools will be able to keep going and others will have to stop. Um, There there are a number of scenarios. Uh, We could get to the point where uh, the testing is not available or the turnaround time is not satisfactory. And, and it, uh, our, our doctors and scientists could say, uh, what you're doing is not going to work going forward, so you need to stop. And if that happens at a time where we can pivot to the spring, uh, I, have, I have no problem with that. I just don't think that's the kind of thing you do preemptively. Still a lot of questions surrounding this and uh, moving forward. Also, some quick headlines from around the NFL. Lamar Jackson uh, still hoping that the Ravens sign Antonio Brown. Uh, I just sure, you know, he, he's a great, like, well, around us, he was a great guy. You know, you don't really see anything going on at all. You know, he cooled down the earth guy, you know, and he, he's passionate about the sport of football. Like, when he was working, you can tell, like, this man, is he going to go, like, 24-7. And after the workout, he still went and lifted. Like, he already, prior to the workout, he lifted, um, we go out there and go to throwing routes. After that, them guys went lift it some more. I'm like, dang, this guy is, is no quitting with him. So it's like, that's the type of guy we need in, in our locker room. And I feel like that we want to win. And I can tell in, in him he want to win. He want to play ball. Meanwhile, a rookie quarterback, Tua Tongo Bailoa, passed his physical with the Dolphins uh, and now able to practice, although Brian Flores saying they're taking uh, time with him during training camp. I know there's a lot of uh, uh, you know, people want to talk about Tua. Uh, I understand it. Uh, at the same time, you know, he's a young player. This is his first you know, NFL training camp. Uh, I think he's got to take it, you know, one day at a time and not, you know, think about, you know, what's realistic for the season. I think we just need to take a one day at a time approach, um, which has been my message to him. And it's not just him. It's really every player on this team.
The Mariners rallied from two late deficits for a 10-7 victory over the Angels on Wednesday night. Scott Service saying it was a fun game and fun to watch a lot of the youth on display yesterday. Uh, Justin Dunn on the mound and pretty formidable through three innings. The fourth inning is where things got a little bit dicey. Ended up uh, giving up a home run to Shohei Otani uh, to right center field. 402 feet on that but still impressive through three innings and two of those facing the minimum yesterday. So a lot of positives for Dunn on the mound. Also, Kyle Lewis still doing Kyle Lewis things, continued his hitting streak six games now uh, to start the season, a three for five night for him. Also, speaking of Kyle's, Kyle Seeger uh, with a couple of RBIs yesterday and no one told him that he was going to have a slow start this year. Nope, just banishing that idea. J.P. Crawford batting in the leadoff spot for the first time and pretty darn successful doing it as well. At one point had a really gritty 10 pitch at bat that was fun to watch. Uh, ended up going two for three with two runs and two RBI while batting in that leadoff spot. Uh, today, we will get a look at Marco Gonzalez for his second start and his seventh career start in Anaheim. Uh, and he will be up against Dylan Bundy. Also, a quick note on catcher Austin Nola. He could be ready to return for Seattle's home opener. According to Scott's service, he was a late scratch Tuesday with a sore right knee. We'll just leave you with a home run call because kind of... I've missed them. I've missed being able to hear them. And Dylan Moore hitting uh, a three-run shot yesterday. The best part on the TV broadcast was that someone in the Mariners' dugout clearly knew it was headed that way, and they yelled Homer really loudly. Uh, You can't hear it as much on the home run call, but why not send you out with a Goldie home run call because we've missed these. That's a wrap for the hot list and the entire Blitz at 6 Hour. Danny and Gallant coming your way next right here on 710 ESPN Seattle. The next pitch. Swing and he... Blast this out to the gap, right center field. Trout looking up, looking, saluting, gone, home run. Dylan Moore the opposite way. A homecoming for Dylan also. How about that mammoth blast? Three-run smash, his first of 2020. Comes at Angel Stadium. He puts the Mariners in front 6-4 to four in the sixth inning.